Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. I know it wasn't that long ago I was with you all, but nonetheless, here I am again, getting ready to share more exciting information. Well, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but information that is relevant behind the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald and Michael Schumacher's The Mighty Fitz. So we're going to talk uh, in tonight's podcast um, about a device known as the Curve being the cable-controlled underwater research vehicle, uh, which I did mention uh, some from the previous podcast, but we're going to talk more about it tonight and what and what it had done uh, in terms of being able to uh, locate the Edmund Fitzgerald once and for all. And we're also going to discuss um, some uh, theories that that the board, uh, or I should say the Marine Board, proposed, but I should say that the Marine Board came up with countless theories. And of course, it would probably take an eternity to discuss all those theories. So I personally felt that it was best to talk about three of them that I thought were probably the most relevant to share. So we're going to talk about a ship, and I might have mentioned this from a previous podcast, but the ship obviously is going to have a big role. It it already had a big role even right after the Fitzgerald sank in terms of... um, looking for the wreckage in terms of using um, the technology equipment that was sophisticated for it for its day, being in 1975. But the ship uh, known as the Woodrush is very vital. And who are its um, top captain and head admirable? Head admiral, admiral, pardon me. <laughs> they both sound alike, admirable and admiral. <laughs> But uh, Captain Jimmy Hobaugh and Admiral Winifred Barrow are the head commanders of this ship, a.k.a. the Woodrush. Well, what is unique about the Woodrush? This ship will, will be responsible for, lower, for lowering the curve, or what's known as that cable-controlled underwater research vehicle, into the water of Lake Superior, where its objective was to locate the Edmund Fitzgerald. And we have to remember, folks, this ship is 530 feet below Lake Superior's surface. So I'm going to say right now it's going to be a very, very tough uh, task. However, do the uh, crew of the Woodrush, do they have a lot of confidence that this could happen? Yes, they do. And we'll explain here shortly why they have a lot of confidence. But the crew on the Woodrush, they want to know as many answers as possible that the curve can provide as to why the Fitzgerald disappeared. In other words, how and why did the Fitzgerald go out of um, sight on the radar? Did Captain Jimmy Hobaugh and Admiral Admiral Winifred Barrow, including the rest of their crew aboard the Woodrush, 
become deeply connected to the Fitzgerald? And the answer is yes. The Woodrush was involved in the search and rescue mission right after the Fitzgerald sank. The Woodrush's sonar side scan equipment had located the physical, physical wreckage, but they still had not been able to, to pinpoint exactly that what they had uh, seen early on or detected early on was the actual ship itself. It was one thing to spot wreckage or debris, but there has to be something else that can really be the smoking gun to say once and for all this is where this ship actually lies. And we'll um, find out more here in a moment in terms of that um, physical proof piece. But the crew uh, behind the wood rush had spent a great deal of time in San Diego, California during the winter of 75 and into the beginnings of 1976, learning everything there was to know about how the new uh, curve uh, vehicle, or let alone, uh, let alone, I should say, uh, cable-controlled underwater research vehicle uh, functioned. This was crucial because it's one thing to be given a a non um, what do you call it a given a vehicle that is uh, that doesn't have to rely on people going to the bottom of say Lake Superior or to an Atl or to the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean, but you've got to know how to work this thing. This isn't like using a remote control car. This isn't. Um, using uh, like a robotic device when doing a medical operation. This is something that um, obviously has cost a lot of money, so it's got to be put into good use, but you've got to know how to, um, you know, work this thing once it's lowered into the water so that when it comes back up, you're going to have some form of, uh, you're going to get some kind of good, meaningful result, not just when it comes back up from the water, but while it's down there. Here's a question. Did, did the elements behind the search mission with Curve gradually start coming together once the device was far below superior surface? Well, the answer is yes. The Curve had detected a hatch cover half buried in silt to taconite pellets scattered across the debris field and what was the Fitzgerald known for transporting, being an iron ore freighter? Taconite pellets. But at the same time, there still remains a shroud of darkness. Well, think about it. The further down you go into a body of water, the darker it becomes. I've never gone inside a vehicle an underwater vehicle that would, you know, transport you well below the surface of, say, the Atlantic Ocean. But what I do know is from having read um, books years ago about the Titanic and even watching documentaries about the Titanic, for example, um, they sent, um, what do you call it, um, unmanned um, submersibles down to the very bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean being... Um, two and a half miles below the surface where the Titanic uh, rests. And the further down you go, being at the very bottom, being two and a half miles below, it is pitch black. 
And I would say that it's probably safe to say that the further down you go into Lake Superior, there are parts of that lake that can be pitch black. So right now, uh, the crew aboard the Woodrush, as I mentioned earlier, they've, they've seen a um, detached, um, they've seen a hatch cover that's half buried in silt. So this, uh, the curve um, vehicle is obviously transmitting pictures from below to above. So this way the crew knows that, okay, this is what the um, vehicle is doing. This is what we're seeing. Here is um, what do you call it, entry-level proof that we're on to something. So now the crew has some hope that, okay, we've got a few things here. Now let's see if we can get um, some big big-time results. What piece of evidence, this is a good bonus question here, people, let's uh, pay careful attention. What piece of evidence detected by the curve was considered to be the smoking gun for physically locating the Fitzgerald's wreckage? When a mountain of steel appeared on the curve's monitor, being none other than the Fitzgerald's hull, not just the hull itself, but the but proof which came into the form of the curves detecting letters. Now think about this. Given just how cold Lake Superior is year-round, the ship, uh, given that here we are in the uh, spring of 1976 now, so the Fitzgerald sank in November of 75. We're talking now about... Um, six months afterwards, and it's not just six months afterwards, but when you consider Lake Superior's uh, water temperature year-round, it, it's pretty cold. It's not below zero, but it is somewhere not far from, say, the 32-degree threshold. But as I mentioned earlier from a previous podcast, the legend has it that Superior never gives up her dead, and what that means is that if a ship sinks to the bottom of Superior, the ship isn't going to corrode right away. Given just how uh, cold Superior's temperatures are, a ship could still, um, it still could be um, in form with, with its name intact. And what do you know? When the curve, after... Um, after locating the hole, it came upon letters that, which in turn led to words such as Edmund Fitzgerald in Milwaukee. So what do you know? The Fitzgerald has now been officially located. And it's not just the fact that it's located, but the fact that what they saw in letters, or the curve itself saw in letters that could be transmitted from, from above to the crew of the uh, Woodrush was that smoking gun, that, the, that, where, that where they were monitoring the curves, um, what do you call it, navigation from below, did in fact provide them 
a huge sense of uh, relief knowing that they were able to actually discover this ship. Think about it. No actual scuba divers had gone down. I think that would have been a very daunting task right there, but the fact that this new state-of-the-art equipment had um, really proven to be uh, a huge investment. Now, the curve uh, vehicle had determined that the stern portion to the Fitzgerald had come to rest in an upside-down position. So remember, people, um, it's one thing for a ship to sink, but when a ship sinks, it doesn't automatically mean that when it slams into the into the very bottom, whether it's the Atlantic Ocean or one of the Great Lakes, it doesn't mean it's going to um, land at the very bottom all in one piece. This ship split, and its uh, um, stern is upside down, but yet it's still intact upside down. The curve itself, um, being its lights, fell onto the Fitzgerald's rudder, and the propeller, which I was blown away at in terms of its overall, um, what do you call it, um, not footage, but uh, length, 19 and a half feet. That's a long propeller. But the propeller was pointing strangely towards the surface of Lake Superior. So, this, all of this has been, has become the first big, or should I say major clue in resolving, once and for all, the wreckage of the Fitzgerald, that the Fitzgerald is there, but there are still more, um, there's still more of an investigation that has to be done as to what perhaps did cause the Fitzgerald to sink or what didn't. But the bottom line is, um, this is one uh, huge step. Now, was this the only um, dive, or should I say, um, what do you call it, search and rescue um, mission that the um, curve vehicle uh, did to the fit, uh, underwent uh, to the wreckage of the site? Uh, the answer is no. It turns out that there were... Um, 12 dives to the Fitzgerald wreckage site between May 20th and May 28th of 1976. So in a nine-day span, you're looking at probably roughly about um, almost two, um, two explorations a day. Well, it turns out that um, given that there were 12 dives to the site... This um, led to producing 43,255 feet of TV footage to 895 still photographs in 56 hours and 5 minutes of time at the wreckage site. Now, what I should point out here is this. The images on the screen that the curve vehicle saw and produced to the crew for the wood rush are very powerful um, images 
these images that were sent, or should I say transmitted, indicated just how destructive the Fitzgerald sinking proved to be. This was no peaceful death for this ship. The Fitzgerald had suffered an agonizing death, and what I mean by agonizing, a very painful one. Most of the bow section was buried in mud. There were gaping holes torn into the bow of the ship, and there was a lot of twisting, or should I say twisting of steel at the end of the bow section. All of this served as a powerful reminder to how quickly the Fitzgerald had broken apart. And I should say this, and I will even mention it again here shortly, but I'll tell you this right now. About 200 feet of the Fitzgerald's middle section simply vanished. And you're probably wondering, well, how can 200 feet of this ship's middle section just go away? Well, I mean, it's obvious that a magic wand just didn't... um, eliminate it. But what I can tell you is this. The Fitzgerald's bow section was 276 feet long, meaning her front. The stern was 253 feet, that is from behind. So if you add 276 plus 253, that's 529. The ship itself is seven, was 729 feet long, so 200 feet of the Fitzgerald, meaning that it's a middle section, had completely disintegrated into thousands of pieces, cluttering the debris field between both sections. I can only imagine just, I mean, 200 feet being completely disintegrated in a matter of minutes is just uh, riveting. I mean, it's, it's powerful to think what the forces of Mother Nature alone could do to a ship this size when you consider uh, the waves that, that the ship had encountered, rogue waves perhaps 30, 35 feet high, and the fact that the ship had probably hit a shoal and was taking on so much water underground that the waves that came on at the very end, I mean, not that there wasn't anything else wrong or went wrong, but the waves themselves were probably the straws that broke the camel's back. But I can only imagine what these 30 or 35-foot waves could do to um, not only just take the hatch covers off, but once those hatch covers uh, broke apart, all of that water went gushing into the cargo hold and literally just tore everything to pieces in the middle. So that is just how powerful Mother Nature's wrath can be in a matter of minutes. The curve's exploration of the pilot house, which is the highest, um, what do you call it, highest point on top of a ship or of a freighter, The curve's exploration of the pilot house was the most compelling part of the dive. The pilot house's windows are missing. The house itself was totally destroyed by an explosive collision with the the lake floor. 
So bottom line is that the, when these rogue waves came through, it took out the pilot house and knocked anybody who was up there being Captain Ernest McSorley and his um, head mates below him never even had a chance to fend for themselves. They were all just taken aback so far that they probably died immediately on impact by that wave. Just because you're inside, it doesn't mean that a wave, it doesn't mean that the glass itself is secure to where you'd be protected. The photographs and television footage from uh, the curve vehicle did help help serve a function in positively identifying the Edmund Fitzgerald, but it still failed to answer some very key questions on how and why the ship sank. The wreckage itself was so bad that it became difficult for the Marine Board to draw any true fundamental conclusions about whether or not the Fitzgerald had suffered a hole fracture or had broke on the surface. This is a good uh, scenario or case scenario scenario here of what is called an unsolved mystery. Kind of like that famous TV show. I, I used to enjoy watching it years ago, but um, but the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald is a very uh, good example of an unsolved mystery. Based on Curve 3, or based on the Curve's photos, the Marine Board members became more convinced that the Fitzgerald didn't break apart on the surface. They do know this, that given that the bow section was upright and the bow itself had plowed right into the ground, that would have told them right away that that the ship could not have broken uh, could not have uh, broken apart right away on the surface. Now I do know that the investigation into the Fitzgerald sinking has prompted, or at that time and still does, even probably to today, it has prompted countless speculation of theories. So what are some of the theories I have uh, thought or worth sharing with you guys tonight? The first one has to do with the size of the cargo load that the Fitzgerald was carrying. Now remember, she's carrying over 26,000 tons of uh, cargo, being all taconite pellets. The Marine Board's focus with this theory had to do with new winter line or winter load line regulations. The load line markings on a side of a ship would indicate the depth to where a vessel could settle in the water when fully loaded. And remember, that loading process is a very delicate matter. It's not like packing a car when going on a vacation. If cargo isn't properly loaded into the cargo holds themselves, the ship itself could hog to where it would become uneven, to where the bow or the stern could um, eventually list and cause um, internal uh, fractures, uh, basically to where a ship itself could uh, break apart once it was on the water. Ships were required 
to ride higher in the water when lakes became more unpredictable and even choppy, meaning the waters were just, when, when it's choppy out there on the waters, it's very uh, an uncomfortable um, feeling, especially in late fall and winter. And hey, late fall, the gales of November. So taking on heavier cargoes meant decreasing freeboard, that is, decreasing the distance from the waterline to the spar deck. Now, it's one thing to take on more cargo, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you also could be putting your ship in greater uh, harm's way. So these load line alterations could have contributed to the Fitzgerald sinking. But the irony to it is that in years past, when the Fitzgerald went out in late November to deliver taconite pellets, there didn't seem to be any problems. But the gales of November and Mother Nature's wrath, especially in November, are always unpredictable. And that's just the way it's been. But if the Fitzgerald didn't have any problems beforehand, why, wasn't, why was luck not on her side in November of 75? That question right there is another good example of something that just will forever remain an unsolved mystery. As for theory number two, the, it, it comes down to uh, missing or what was uh, referred to as lost vents. The Marine Board had determined that a loss of a fence rail, including two vents, was not enough to contribute to the sinking of the Fitzgerald. However, lost vents themselves would have allowed for water to enter the ballast tanks, contributing to a list. And remember, the ballast tanks are those watertight storage tanks below the cargo below the cargo hold, that is, on the starboard and port sides, where added weight being water helped modify stability. So, and of course, if, if water had been allowed to enter into the ballast tanks as a result of those lost vents, then yes, it would have caused the ship to list, meaning it would have uh, been taking on so much water that it would have um, started... Um, tilting in the opposite direction to where um, it was no longer um, on even par. And yes, when uh, Captain McSorley did radio uh, Captain Bernie Cooper, the Arthur Anderson, and he said that he had lost a fence rail, then that may have been the first sign right there that the Fitzgerald, other than having hit, supposedly hitting a shoal, that would have been another sign right there that it was in its early stages of not only just taking on water, but perhaps uh, leading to um, an eventual list. And it's very well possible that if the ship was listing, especially listing more so as the wind gusts picked up, which um, would contribute to these rogue waves, then the rogue waves themselves 
would have been enough to have caused uh, the Fitzgerald's uh, listing to become so unstable that that everything just um, went rock bottom in a matter of minutes to where she just ultimately um, disintegrated and crumbled. And Marine Board investigators had determined that only two out of the six ballast pumps were working. And the ballast pumps uh, basically uh, take in water, but they also pump out water that's already um, in the tanks. So when you've got gushing water coming in very quickly, if your hatch covers have been destroyed by these rogue waves, the ballast uh, pumps are just not going to be able to keep up with the onslaught of water coming in at such a rapid pace uh, to where there's to where the systems from within will no longer be uh, relevant. That is, they just won't be able to function. And speaking of um, something that probably did not function, were the non-watertight bulkheads. The cargo hold was filled with screen bulkheads dividing loads into thirds. Now, the Fitzgerald's um, bulkheads were not watertight. So in other words, once, if fl once flooding occurred, that flooding into the cargo hold would move freely from one compartment to another. There wasn't a mechanism that could uh, completely close a compartment to where, okay, once, once water entered into one compartment, it would stay there and not go over into the next one. So if this was the case, where one compartment after another got flooded, this would definitely cause a ship's uh, overall state of buoyancy around the bow section being up at the front to decrease. And by doing so, um, the ship would just no longer be able to stay afloat. And probably could take on uh, further listing as well. And as I said earlier, these are just some of a handful of theories. I could go on and on about the theories themselves, but I think that would take an eternity. But what I was really impressed from, from uh, not only just in having read this book, but rereading what was uh, relevant to share, especially in tonight's podcast, was the Curve vehicle, this cable a controlled underwater research vehicle. If it weren't for this vehicle, I'm not sure what else would have been um, handy in being able to locate the actual um, site of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Not just the site, but the ship herself. And not just the ship, but being able to physically determine that those letters and words were all in connection with the Fitzgerald. Now, I think what the hardest part is now is that the Marine Board, while yes, they have come up with a lot of plausible theories, they have really done their homework well. They have tried uh, in every way to, to get the facts straight. Captain Bernie Cooper, the Arthur M. Anderson, has um, given uh, significant testimony. 
After all, he was the most reliable witness. He was with the Fitzgerald the entire time until she went out of sight. But the hardest part that still remains is that given with all of the um, proposals, given with all of the um, testimony, being that 45 people testified, is it enough to bring closure to the 29 families who did lose loved ones? on the night of November 10th, 1975? I hate to say this, but the answer is no. Do you think that these families would have would be able to find a way to find closure? I believe that they can find closure. And I know that the uh, National Transportation Safety Board, the Marine Board, they're, they've done everything they can at this point to provide closure. Will they continue to find ways? Absolutely. It's just going to take time. And as tragic as this event was for its time, I'm very thankful that there were only three news media outlet stations. In other words, they weren't on the air 24-7 just entertaining you. They were getting their facts straight, but they were also letting outside agencies like the National Transportation Safety Board and the Marine Board do their work as well. And while, yes, some people may not have agreed with everything they found, it was uh, impartial. They allowed for um, experts to testify left and right. They allowed for former crew people who had served on the Fitzgerald in years past to tell about their um, experiences. The bottom line is, is that um, we'd like to believe that there was that one, um, that one ultimate uh, theory that led to the ship sinking. I, I still believe, if you asked me, what do you truly believe caused the ship to sink? Based off of what I've shared tonight, I think anything's possible. What I do know is that that there were rogue waves that night. Of course, I wasn't alive in 1975, but having read the book and reading about the description of these waves and just how bad the storm was, anything was possible on that night to take out a ship as mighty as the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the thought of 30 to 35 foot waves striking this ship, oh, I believe it. It's sad to think that that it happened that it had to happen to the ship. I'm not saying that it shouldn't have happened to the Arthur Anderson or any other ship, but here this ship was still in her prime, and yet it was just taken without any um, warning that could have um, perhaps prevented um, that could have uh, enabled her crew to have. Um, gotten their life jackets on, assembled the lifeboats. But remember, Mother Nature doesn't always give you that opportunity when you're out on the water. Mother Nature will throw her wrath at any way, big and small, that'll catch you off guard to where the thought of being able to prepare may not even exist. So, in our next podcast session, we're going to talk about a fellow named Gordon Lightfoot. 
I've mentioned him er from another earlier podcast, but Gordon Lightfoot is going to be um, someone who's going to help keep the memory of the 29 men who lost their lives on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and for those of you out there who want to know more about this ship, you can definitely go online. Um, I definitely um, encourage uh, reading a book about it, even this one that we're discussing, uh, written by Michael Schumacher, The Mighty Fitz. But I also say this because if you are interested in wanting to come up with your own theory or look into other theories, do that. What I provided tonight was just simply a 101 um, playing field uh, base level entry. Well, I look forward to sharing more in another episode. Thank you for listening tonight. Uh, Stay safe and take care. God bless.